Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away. Judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? he asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, in case you have forgotten or you weren't here, uh, three weeks ago, I started us in a short sermon series called King Jesus. And on that first Sunday, I preached out of 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the nation of Israel has asked that God give them a king so that they can be like the other nations. God warns the people through Samuel that this is not a good idea, that this king will only use and disappoint the people. But the people reject the warning and say, give us a king anyway. And so begins the long line of Israel's kings. The Sunday after that, Sarah Shin came, and she preached about the colors of Jesus' kingdom. And then last week, we were away for the fall advance. So, today, we settle back in, and we move forward in our King Jesus sermon series, where we will now remain throughout the rest of November. Those of you who know me know that my, um, my personality is not one that lends to regret. My general tendency is to give myself the benefit of the doubt on things. I am typically pretty satisfied with my decisions, my plans, my performance. I am highly critical of others, but not of myself. But I do have a few regrets. Things that I look back on in my past and wish that I had done differently. And one of them is my participation in the time-honored tradition of saying the Pledge of Allegiance. 
I know the vast majority of you are aware of it, but for anyone who grew up outside of the U.S. and isn't aware, when I was a kid in school, every school day began the same way. We gathered to our seats, our teacher told us to stand, face the flag, and put our hands over our hearts. And once every student in the classroom had been readily prepared, we recited together. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I pledge my allegiance. Those are powerful words. Words that were meant to communicate that while a good movie might hold my attention and my family might hold my affection and sports might hold my interest and my leisure time, that it was my country that owned my allegiance. We put our hands on our hearts to express the level of commitment and devotion with which we made the statement. And we knew that at the heart of this Pledge of Allegiance was a willingness to do anything that it might take in order to protect and preserve the nation to whom we made the pledge. And what I regret, what I wish now, looking back on that young boy who stood there so proudly morning after morning with his hand on his heart, was that instead of putting my hand on my heart and daily pledging my allegiance to the United States of America, is that what I would have respectfully but firmly told my teacher at the beginning of each new school year was that while I held deep love for my country and while I appreciated the freedoms and the opportunities that she offered and while I looked forward to one day making a salary so that I could help pay taxes to support her, that while this land would always hold a special place in my heart, she would never have my allegiance. Because my allegiance, my unquestioned, unwavering loyalty, already belongs to another, and his name is Jesus Christ. That my heart could not be covered and then committed to a nation state of this earth when my heart already belonged to Jesus and to his kingdom. I wish that I had possessed the theological and personal awareness to recognize that, that even though I stood and said those words, that I didn't actually mean them. And I wish for the benefit of the students that would have seen me sitting there and for the benefit of the teacher that have, would have witnessed my respectful unwillingness to participate that I would have sat out that pledge. I regret that. I wish for the benefit of Jesus that I had sat it out that he could have seen me sitting in silence because of my love for him and that he might have found joy in that moment. I don't know what he thought when he saw me standing there every morning with my hand over my heart pledging allegiance to this country. I'm guessing, I think because I tend to give myself the benefit of the doubt, that he didn't mind very much. Just like it doesn't bother me that much if I ask Agnes whether she loves me or Candy more and she promptly declares her love for candy. I know she doesn't really mean that, and I'm sure he knows that I didn't really mean it either. Nevertheless, 
I sure would love it if when I asked that question, Agnes threw her candy to the ground, stomped on it, crushed it under her feet, and then turned to me and said, Daddy, I love you more than all the candy in the world. And I'm sure he would have loved it if I had looked at my teacher and my classmates and said, you go ahead, you pledge your allegiance to the flag. I pledge my allegiance to Christ alone. The foundation upon which the Christian confession of faith stands is that Jesus is Lord. It was a confession that from its earliest declarations challenged and disputed the central claim of the Roman Empire that there is no king but Caesar. But first Christians rejected that. While the rest of the Roman Empire, including the chief priests of Israel, repeated those words without question, constantly pledging their allegiance to Rome and to Caesar, early Christians refused. To claim that there was no king but Caesar, Christians responded, Jesus is Lord. This got them stoned and speared and beaten and imprisoned, but they would not abandon their claim. Because Caesar may have been king over this temporary empire, but Jesus is Lord of all and their allegiance was to him alone. So I want to begin this morning by communicating what I think, at least for our purposes here today, is the essential thing that all of us who call ourselves Christians and disciples of Christ must recognize, and it is an issue of identity. And that is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a citizen of heaven or a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, you are also a citizen of some nation state in this world, the U.S., Canada, Japan, the U.K., Ghana, Brazil, Singapore, etc. But first and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. And here's the essential part. It is your status as a citizen of God's kingdom that then defines how you exist as a citizen of whatever country you are from, not the other way around. You are not defined in your Christianity by whatever country you come from. You, as a citizen of God's kingdom, then exist in some other place, temporarily, entirely defined by your primary citizenship. The way that scripture, the scriptures communicate about Christians is that we are sojourners on this earth and in any country that we inhabit here. If we are residents of a nation, that is just a temporary status. Paul writes in Philippians 3, For I have told you often before that there are many whose conduct shows they are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners or sojourners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against their, your very souls. 
the message from Peter and Paul to the Christians that they are teaching and encouraging is very simple and very clear. You live in this world that is true, but it is not your true home. Your citizenship is in God's kingdom. Therefore, and they have many applications of this, which we won't go into, but one of them is the way that you live in this world and the country that you live in is, is defined by your citizenship in God's kingdom. Peter specifically takes this language from the Old Testament, from Moses and the Israelites who lived in Egypt, even though it was not their home. They were just temporarily residing there. From Abraham, who was called by God to leave behind uh, his home and go to Canaan, where he would live as a foreigner among the people there. From early on, God's people have existed as foreigners in a strange land as a people that were temporarily positioned in a specific location, even as they waited in preparation to enter into their true home. This is the entire focus of Hebrews chapter 11, where we read about all these heroes of faith, Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Abraham, and then we read all these people died still believing what God had promised them, They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance, and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Peter and Paul pick up on that theme from the Old Testament, and they communicate to the earliest Christians, that is also who you are. You are foreigners. You are nomads. You are wanderers. You are sojourners, because your actual home is in heaven. And that defines how you are to live in this world. The ramifications of this are obviously way too many to explore in one sermon. So what I want to do today is just take a a, a little bit of a deeper dive into one area which is relevant and pertinent for today, and that is in politics. As all of you know, Tuesday is election day. And the teaching that we as Christians are primarily citizens in God's kingdom, then raises questions about what our participation looks like on election day. What does it mean for Christians who are citizens of heaven to participate in or to not participate in the political process of electing leaders and voting for or against certain laws? And again, while we could then spend a lot of time just exploring that part, I want to take it, focus a little bit more specifically even on politics and dig into one area. I want to begin with a very simple but declarative statement. And that statement is, It is absolutely essential for Christians to be involved in the political process. Now, someone might say, that doesn't make sense. I'm a citizen of heaven. I live under a different constitution, a constitution which Pastor Joseph will get to next week from the Sermon on the Mount. I am a spiritual person a citizen of a spiritual kingdom, I am not a political person. But the reality is, is that the scriptures are deeply political themselves. The Bible is full of political language and ideas. The idea of kingship, of judgment, of law, of citizenship. This is political language. Beyond that, as we're going to see in just a minute, The Bible has very specific things to say to us about how we respond to political leaders and authorities. 
So clearly, God, through his word, is engaged with what is happening with the politics of this world. And at the very least, that allows us to be involved, even if that involvement simply is us submitting to those political authorities because the Bible told us to. But even more than that, while we do not primarily identify as citizens of certain nation states, we do still inhabit those states, and even more importantly than that, far more importantly than that, the people that we are called to love and serve inhabit those political states and are impacted by their politics and policies. Therefore, I return to the original statement, it is absolutely essential for Christians to be involved in the political process. What that does not mean, even though some Christians and Christian leaders will teach it, is that our engagement in the political process primarily boils down to submitting to the leaders that God has placed over us as a nation or as a state or as a city. One of the more contentious passages on this issue that deals with politics and kingship in the scriptures comes from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 13. And I'm going to read the full passage for you just for the context of it. And then I want to comment on it briefly because I think that passage actually leads us into a useful conclusion about our engagement in the political process. So here is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So, anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servant sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Those are complicated verses. These verses have been taught, preached, and understood by some Christians to say that all political, all national, all state, all local community leaders and authorities have been put into their position by God, and that because they have been placed there by God, we, as followers of God, should do what they say, submit to them, and follow whatever commands and laws they provide for us. And that if we do not do that, then we are, as verse 2 says, rebelling not just against them, but against the very authority that God has given us. In fact, just a few months ago, our nation's attorney general referenced the, this very passage. Families at our southern border were being separated and divided up. There was an outcry by many in the nation about the ethics of family division. And the attorney general kind of shot a bow over the boat of Christianity, 
referencing this passage as a way of reminding Christians that according to the Bible, if we rebel against our God-given authorities, then we are rebelling against God himself. But the Bible says more than just what is written in the 13th chapter of Romans. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, the ruling authority in Egypt, Pharaoh, called Hebrew midwives into his presence, and he commanded them that when they assisted in the delivery of Hebrew babies, if they were girls, let them live, but if they were boys, that they should kill the boys. These Hebrew midwives continued delivering babies, but Exodus 1.17 tells us that because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. Pharaoh was, of course upset because his laws had been ignored, and when he called the midwives in, they made up a story about how Hebrew women were far more vigorous than Egyptian women, and they go through labor much faster than the Egyptian women, and so the midwives were trying to run around and find all these boys to kill them, but just couldn't get there fast enough, and that's why they had, which I have to assume was a lie, meant to give some kind of explanation to Pharaoh about why they had disobeyed his direct command, and yet... Despite ignoring the ruling authority who was over them, and despite deceiving him about the reasons for their disobedience, we read, so God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So, not only did God not punish them for their lack of obedience to the ruling authority, God actually rewarded the midwives for ignoring that ruling authority and instead obeying God's command. Later, in the book of Daniel, we have two separate examples of this. The first is in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar, or they would be thrown into the furnace of fire. But they refused... Because God's law commanded that they not bow their knee nor their head to anyone but God himself. So they ignored the commands of the ruling authority and they were thrown into a furnace. But as most of us know, not only did they escape that furnace unharmed, God actually joined them in the furnace in what has to be one of the most powerful signs of solidarity you can imagine. Later, it was Daniel who was on the line, the law had come down that you were not allowed to bow down or pray to or worship anyone but King Darius. But of course, Daniel ignored the law of the ruling authority, continuing to worship God and pray to him. That landed him in the lion's den. But again, God sent an angel to protect Daniel, shut the lion's mouth, and he escaped unharmed, unharmed despite his obvious disobedience to the king's laws. And it's not just stories in the Old Testament. Because Peter and John do the same thing in Acts chapters 4 and 5. The two men are preaching the gospel openly. They're talking about Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. As they are doing this, they are arrested, they are imprisoned. And the rulers of the people, according to Acts uh, 4.18, command them never again to teach in the name of Jesus. To which Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you or him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. So yes, Paul gives instructions on honoring our leaders, but throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, 
we find that faithful members of God's kingdom reject the rules and the laws that they are under if they find that they are in conflict with God's rule and God's law. And so that's where we lead to what I want to encourage you as we head into election day this week. And I know what you're thinking. He's not going to tell us how to vote. I am going to tell you how to vote. (laughs) I'm sorry, not tell, suggest. (laughs) As Christians, we are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom which means that we first and foremost live under God's laws. Well, what is God's law? Jesus tells us, Mark chapter 12. The most important command is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second command is equally important, Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And in the context of an election week, I want to pay particular attention to that second command, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. If Jesus teaches us that loving our neighbor is as important as loving God and if the politics and policies of our nation have a significant impact on our neighbor, then as Christians, it is an absolute necessity that we are involved in the political process because that political process impacts the neighbor that we are called to love. And so, ignoring a political process that might enact laws or elect leaders who would oppress the neighbor that we are called to love is an act on our part, not only of spiritual negligence, but of spiritual violence against the neighbor that we are called to love and serve. I worked really hard on that paragraph, like every single word, so I'm going to read it again just so it sinks in. If Jesus teaches us that loving our neighbor is as important as loving God, And if the politics and policies of our nation have a significant impact on that neighbor, then as Christians, it is an absolute necessity that we are involved in the political process because that political process impacts the neighbor that we are called to love and serve. And so ignoring the political process that might enact laws or elect leaders that would oppress that neighbor whom we are called to love is not only spiritual, not just, is not, to love is not an act on our part, not only of spiritual negligence, but of spiritual violence against the neighbor that we are called to love. So, let me be clear. This is not about any one particular politician. There is no political messiah on the ballot this Tuesday, and nobody in this room should ever put our hope in any political person or political party or political platform. Jesus is Lord. And all of our hope and all of our faith is in him and him alone. There is no party that can rescue us. There is no person that can save us. Jesus saves. Jesus is Lord. That is everything. And because Jesus is king and I have declared my allegiance to him and him alone, 
That means I must follow his command to love my saber, say, neighbor as myself. Did I say love my saber? That's, that's a scary political. That means I follow his command to love my neighbor as I love myself, which means that I will engage in the political process in a way not that lowers my taxes or meets my needs, but in a way that loves, serves, and protects the neighbor that Jesus calls me to love. So, to be, I was trying to tease you a little earlier, I have no suggestions on any particular party or candidate or policy for this coming Tuesday. But I do have an absolute suggestion on your posture going into Tuesday, that when you look at the ballots in front of you, you aren't just picking people who you have identity politics with or there are, or popularity politics, that your thought process with ballot in front of you is, how can I love my neighbor in the way that I vote on this document? And if there are persons in power or if there are policies in place that oppress or malign my neighbor, I am not called to submit to them simply because they are in authority. But like those brave Hebrew midwives, or like Daniel, Peter, or John, we actually resist those powers, and we obey God's law to love our neighbor instead. So what I want to do just in conclusion today is to pray for um, this coming week, to pray for Tuesday, to pray for the lives of those who are affected by the outcomes of Tuesday. And I have kind of some stuff I'm going to lead us through. So if you are uh, able and willing, I'd love to invite you into a time of prayer with me. I just want to begin by inviting us to pray for safety at the elections on Tuesday, for those who are going to vote, for those who are serving at the um, places to vote. Just pray for safety for those who travel, who sit there, all of that. I invite us to also pray um, that everyone who is eligible and who desires to vote is able to vote when they go on Tuesday. I invite us to pray that we will elect leaders and choose policies that will care for and represent the oppressed. invite you to pray for just a moment for our current leaders, for current policies, and where we would, and where God would see fit that there would be transformation.
finally pray for our own hearts and that we will have a deep confidence and faith that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, I'm sorry for all the mornings that I stood with my hand over my heart and I declared allegiance to something that wasn't you. I love this country. I'm grateful for it, incredibly grateful for the men and the women who have served it and led it. I'm grateful for the posture that it has had towards those who were looking for new life or better life. I thank you for many things about it that are unique and special, but in the end, you are my God. You are my king. I serve nobody but you. We serve no one but you. We cannot wait until some of the nation states of this world have been dissolved, and this is God's kingdom, where you rule and reign over all. We look forward to your return. Jesus, you are Lord over our politics, over our money, over our bodies, over our relationships, over everything. And where we lack theological knowledge or personal awareness and we give ourselves away to other things, we confess that sin before you and we return to you and you alone. We pray for Tuesday. We pray for safety. We pray for access. We pray that your will will be done, not ours. I'm sure a lot of us have very specific ideas about exactly what should happen on Tuesday, but we pray that your will be done, not ours. And I pray that you will give us the courage to go, to participate, and to love our neighbors, even as we go into the voting booth. I pray that you'll give us insight and wisdom about what that looks like and what it means and how we do that in faithfulness to you. And if there's any part of what I've said today that was off or wrong, I apologize for it. I pray that you would refine it. But I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight on how to go forward, how to live in this world in a way that cares for and protects and loves our neighbor especially those who are oppressed or on the margins, Lord. That's always who you saw and always who you cared for, always who you engaged with. So we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite our praise team to come forward. They're going to lead us in a time of response.